All right, open, if you would, your Bibles to Genesis chapter 34. Genesis 34. If you've read ahead, you probably had to laugh at me for having to teach this today. If you're a sucker for crime dramas, this is a text that is for you. It's actually, I think, one of the most daunting texts in all the Old Testament. Uh, it is not difficult to explain. Okay, so this isn't one of those texts when you're reading, you go, man, this is, what's the deep theology behind this? This is not deep theology. It's not difficult to understand. What's really difficult here is, is understanding the morality of it all from our Western mindset. And so here you get a, a passage of Scripture, a chapter of Scripture that, that spoke, that, that, that speaks about a young woman, probably 14 or 15 years old, getting raped. And then it moves right from there, doesn't really give much attention to that. And the next thing you know, talking about how much her offender loved her and wants to marry her. And so while this isn't necessarily a fun chapter to preach, it's a necessary chapter to preach. Uh, if you're visiting with us for the first time, I don't choose these. You know, we just, we work through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and, and you came on the day that we are on Genesis chapter 34. And so here you get this young woman that's wickedly violated, and her brothers are furious about it. And so they concoct a, a treaty based on circumcision, which is just kind of evil, isn't it? The very thing that that God had, had used to, to set Israel apart from the rest of the nation uh, becomes the, the tool that these brothers use for murder. And so this treachery of sin literally permeates this chapter. You'll see lust and, and rape and anger and deception and greed and murder and, and family conflict. You know, I just heard recently that the, the actor's strike and the writer's strike in Hollywood ended this week. Did anybody hear that? Did anybody even know they were on strike? I didn't even know they were on strike. Apparently that was a really big deal, but I'm thinking who needs the actors and the writers when you got Genesis 34? <laughs> this chapter really helps us understand that this world that God created, this world that he loves is, is dark and it is corrupt and it is broken. And if nothing else, Genesis 34 reminds us that we live in a fallen world. And this fallen world leads to defilement and death. And so I'm going to read our, our whole text of Scripture this morning. Um, I couldn't figure out a good place to kind of stop. And so we'll read the whole thing, and then we're going to come back and just pick it apart verse by verse. Okay, Genesis 34, beginning in verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to visit the daughters of the land. When Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he took her, lay with her by force. He was deeply attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Give me this young girl for a wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah's Dinah, his daughter, but his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob kept silent until they came in. Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. 
Now the sons of Jacob came in from the field where they heard it, and the men were, were grieved and they were very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing ought not to be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him in marriage. Intermarry with us. Give your daughters to us. Take our daughters for yourselves. Thus you shall live with us, and the land shall be opened before you. Live and trade in it and acquire property in it. Shechem also said to her father and, 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 uh, and to her brothers, If I find favor in your sight, then I will give you whatever you want you say to me. Ask me so much, ask me ever so much uh, bridal payment and gift, and I will give according as you say to me, but give me the girl in marriage. Jacob's sons answered Shechem and his father Hamor with deceit, because he had defiled Dinah, their sister. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for, what would be a, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we consent to you, if you will become like us, and that every male of you be circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters for ourselves, and we will live with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us to be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and go. Now their words seemed reasonable to Hamar and Shechem, Hamar's son. The young man did not delay to do the thing because he was delighted with, Jacob, with Jacob's daughter. Now he was more respected than all the household of his father. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are friendly with us. Therefore let them live in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters in marriage and give our daughters to them. Only on this condition will the men consent to live with us, to become one people, that every male among us be circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock and their property and all their animals be ours? Only let us consent to them, and they will live with us. All who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and to his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. Now it came about on the third day when they were in pain. Two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came upon the city unawares and killed every male. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the edge of the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and went forth. Jacob's sons came upon the slain and looted the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks, their herds, their donkeys, and that which was in the city and that which was in the field. And they captured and looted all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives, even all that was in their houses. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me odious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites, and my men became, being few in number, they will gather together against me and attack me, and I will be destroyed, I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister as a harlot? If this is anybody's favorite chapter of scripture, we need to meet for counseling this week. Really, really quick. Wow, what in the world? You know, Sherry and I were, were in Africa a couple of weeks ago. Sherry sat with many of the pastor's wives and, and really for the purpose of hearing their stories and wanted to know about the, the women in the church and the women in their community. And what she discovered is that abuse is rampant in the community. 
Now, you, you take that into our world, and because they're saying, what do we do? And, and in our world, we have a judicial system that begins with a call to 911. Right? You can make a call. There's an abuse hotline you can call. Everything's anonymous, and so there's protection available, and there's opportunities for, for the women in, in America to be able to get out of that abusive situation. Not true in South Africa. You get married in South Africa, and the wife literally leaves her family, and she becomes part of the husband's family. So the husband's family becomes part of her support system. Not part of her support system. They are her support system. And so if you get a woman who's abused by her husband and, 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 and turns him in and he goes to jail, her support system will no longer support her. Her support system is going to forsake her and her husband is no longer going to provide for her and so she will literally starve. Well, why not just get a job, right? That's our thinking. Well, so she can just get a job. Not necessarily, 75% unemployment. Most women don't have much training even if jobs were available. So you can really see why Jesus said if a man divorces her wife, his wife, he, he forces her to commit adultery. Like their, their options are so limited at that point. So what do you do? Now listen, they give counsel to these women that I would never give. Sherry and I wrestled with this, like, what do you say? What do you do? And, and, and they, the counsel that these women, these pastors' wives would give to the women in the community, take the beatings and pray for your husband to become a Christian. Or starve. Or be ostracized. In other words, turn a blind eye to sin and function as one happy family. And as maddening as that is, that's true in our world. And it's Genesis 34. In Genesis 34, there's a teenage girl that suffers the most heinous abuse. And then you saw it when we read the text, right? The, the text just has nothing to do with helping her after that. Nothing to do with ministering to her. Nothing to do with caring for her. You know, you know what the focus is after this? Financial arrangements and family deals. And the crazy thing is that only her brothers are angry about it. They take matters into their own hand. They lie and they concoct a plan to, to ultimately commit genocide. And you go, man, where did these boys learn deceit so well, daddy was pretty good at it too, right? Uncle Laban wasn't bad. By the way, daddy doesn't even speak until the second to the last verse. And you know when daddy speaks, you know what he says? Her rape is all about me. This has to do with me. It's a crazy thing. I mean, we've seen some awful things with Jacob, haven't we? over the last few months. And yet when you read the scriptures, you know what it says about Jacob? Jacob I loved. When God speaks of Jacob, Jacob I loved. And I would say, man, I'm really glad that's in there. It really shows grace. After all the sinful and deceitful things that Jacob did, Jacob I loved, he says.
All right, you ready to work through this fun text this morning? Number one, if you're taking notes, we have a wandering daughter, a wandering daughter. Oftentimes the greatest danger that we face in life aren't, aren't the full frontal attacks. Okay, the full frontal attacks we're prepared for. We watch out for those. It's the subtle ones that, that we aimlessly wander into. In fact, I've found that oftentimes that kids that go off to Christian colleges have their guard down. They go there and they think, oh, everything's going to be safe because it's a Christian school. And they send missionaries out. They train people how to, how to exegete the word of God and how to preach and teach and serve. And, and so they, they put their guard down. They wander. Those that go to secular colleges sometimes do better. Why? Because their guard's up. They're not so vulnerable. Last week, we saw that Jacob compromised when he moved to Shechem. And remember why he moved to Shechem? It was safe. It was good for him. Where'd God tell him to go? We told him to go to Canaan, but specifically, he told him to go to Bethel. Look at Genesis 31, verse 13. It says, I am the God of Bethel where you anointed a pillar, where you made a vow to me. Now arise, leave this land and return to the land of your birth. Bethel is in Canaan, that's sure, but rather than going to Canaan, he initially went to Succoth, lived there for a while. And Succoth is not Bethel, Succoth is not in Canaan, Succoth is on the edge of Canaan. Eventually then he moves from from Succoth to Shechem. Well, Shechem is in Canaan, that's good, but he's supposed to be in Bethel. God told him to go to Bethel. He says, I am the God of Bethel. Now we can rationalize and say that, well, he obeyed God by by returning to to Canaan. That smells a whole lot like uh, like Lot, remember? Remember we studied Lot and and Lot moved towards Sodom? Next thing you know, he's in Sodom. Next thing you know, he's, he's leading in Sodom. And so here you get Jacob that, that is in Shechem now, and well, he's not supposed to be in Shechem, he's supposed to be in Bethel, but he's, he's just kind of playing close. And so he builds an altar there, and, which is good, but that's not where God wanted him to be. And now his moving to Shechel, or Shechel, Shechem, is going to affect his daughter Dinah greatly. Look at verses 1 and 2 of Genesis 34. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to visit the daughters of the land. When Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he took her and lay with her by force. So we could say Shechem was a business decision for Jacob. It made financial sense for him to go there. It was devastating, though, for his family. And you guys have seen people like that, right? They, they make a decision based on, well, you know, this was a better job offer I got to go to another town. And they went from a church where they were involved in the church, they were growing, there was accountability, there was responsibility, all this stuff is going on in the church, and then, and then they leave because daddy got a new job offer, and now daddy's working late, and daddy's working Sundays, and they're not really involved in the church, and, and you just see this family just fall apart. That's what happens here. By him not going all the way to Bethel, it landed him really with the shameful events that happened in Shechem. Now, Dinah, did you notice that she's Jacob's daughter by Leah? Probably, again, probably 14 or 15 years old. What do 14 to 15-year-old girls want? They want friends. So what's it say? She, she wandered. She went out to, to visit some of the other daughters and some of the other girls in the land. 
And they, they hang out together. And, and as they're hanging out, she really scores big, doesn't she? The prince of the land fell for her. I mean, what 14, 15-year-old girl wouldn't want the prince of the land to fall for her? She's like the freshman girl asked to the homecoming dance by the captain of the football team. Now, we don't know what all happened, but somehow the two of them were alone and his passion got the best of him and he rapes her. And that's really the plain reading of the text. And then the text takes a little switch. Look at verse three. He was deeply attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the girl and spoke tenderly to the girl. That's just warped, right? It's just warped. And Dinah, in, in verse one, I don't know if you noticed this or not, in verse one, she's identified as the daughter of Leah. Whose daughter is she in verse three? Jacob's daughter. She was Leah's daughter when she wandered. She's Jacob's daughter now that she's violated. And it seems to me to indicate the great responsibility that Jacob has here. And I have to say, I have a bit of a problem with just how the text reads. I'm not questioning Moses, certainly not questioning inspiration. But how do you go from, from taking her by force and then saying, oh, he loved her and spoke tenderly to her? Honestly, as a dad of seven daughters, I can care less how he feels about her. There's no justification at all for this sin. Look at verse four. So Shechem spoke to his, his father Hamor saying, give me this young girl for a wife. Now, now, now listen, Dinah has very few choices. She's, she's a, a woman now who's been debased. And in this day, there's really not much of an expectancy of her ever having a valid marriage. So Shechem puts her in a no-win situation. It's either I marry her or nobody marries her. I make her commit adultery. I make her fornicate. Now, some, some obviously object uh, this passage or object to this passage because there's a, there's a suggestion that the Old Testament forces a woman who was violated to marry her violator. That's not the case. Okay, you read Exodus 22 and, and, and it allows for the father to refuse to allow her to marry the man. That's within the law. She doesn't have to marry him. Doesn't seem like that's much of a choice though, does it? Look at verse five. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob kept silent until they came in. Well, we don't know how Jacob heard. We just know that he did. We also know that he didn't do anything about it. In fact, the best thing that he does, the best thing that he offers to his daughter is his silence. And I think, well, what if that was your daughter? I mean, who's silent if that happens? Dinah is Leah's daughter. And as much as I hate to say it, I, I wonder how things would have changed if Dinah was Rachel's daughter. Right? Rachel was the one he loved. He was tricked into marrying Leah. And so point number two is a silent response. A silent response. A couple of things that we, we tell our kids. Number one, we say, Silence is consent. You ever heard that before? Silence is consent. In other words, to say nothing about it means that you go along with it, you're good with it. Another thing we tell them is that with information comes responsibility. If you have information about something, you have a responsibility to do something with that information. Jacob should be furious. 
He should be livid here. And what is he? He's silent. You go, why is he silent? I mean, how could you, as, a, as, as the Jacob who is, is now named Israel by God, right, who wrestled with God, who strived with God in one, who's seen God work time after time after time after time, time, he saw Jacob's ladder, he saw the angels descending up, like he's seen all this, and he's silent. And you go, why is he silent? Verse 30 tells us why. Look at verse 30. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, circle these words, you have brought trouble on me by making me odious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites, my men being few in number. They will gather together against me. They will attack me. I will be destroyed. I and my household. Who's this all about as far as Jacob is concerned? Jacob. Jacob is silent because Jacob is a coward. Jacob is more afraid of man than he is of God. Proverbs 29 verse 25 says, the fear of the man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. We don't use snares here very often, right? A snare is a trap. They use snares to catch fish. They use snares to trap game. Satan uses snares to trap people. You know what one of his favorite snares to use is? Fear of man. Jesus spoke of this. Luke 12, verse 4, look what he said. I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Fear God, not man. And think about it. Now, Jesus is preparing his disciples. He's getting them ready for persecution that's going to follow his resurrection. He's getting them ready to be beaten and stoned and flogged and imprisoned. Many of them would be killed. And what's the warning he gives them? Don't be afraid of those who kill the body. Fear God. Their suffering, the trials, the persecution, the torture, all of it is temporary. And then once this life is over, you have heaven awaiting you where wicked men will no longer be able to hurt you. But it's not just physical. When you talk about the fear of man, right? It's mental as well. We're afraid of people not liking us. That's why we give in to peer pressure. The fear of man is a snare. It's a snare when we, when we allow the fear of man to influence our decisions. And the reality is, is we have way too many passive Jacobs in the church today. We need Christians who will stand up and, and take a stance. Remember Peter, he said, we must obey God rather than men. Thousands, tens of thousands of martyrs could have avoided their death by simply remaining silent about their loyalty to Christ. If we allow the fear of man to silence us, then listen, the world is going to love us. But if you don't, then the world will hate you. And so Jacob really has two responses here. He's silent about what happened to Dinah. And he's angry about, his bro about her brother's retribution. And Jacob's silence is consent. Jacob has information 
and he does nothing with it. He takes no responsibility for it. Why? Because he's more afraid of man than he is of God. Look at verse 6. Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. Now the sons of Jacob came in from the field, and when they heard it, the men were grieved and they were very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing ought not to be done. Now the text reads as if Hamor just goes to Jacob, right? But, but what you're seeing here is, is, is as it goes on, especially when you see verses 8 through 11, that the brothers have now joined the conversation. And so they're going to speak on behalf of their dad. Jacob's going to be silent. He's going to be passive. His sons are not silent or passive. His sons are grieving. They're furious. You see what Moses calls Shechem's sin? He says it's a disgraceful thing. To violate somebody is a disgraceful thing. Not to the one who's being violated. To the violator. In fact, some translations say it's an outrageous thing. He says, in this text, he says, it is a thing that ought not to be done. And the problem that I see in here, again, I've got seven daughters and one wife, and only the vengeful brothers are seeing this as disgraceful. Jacob's silent. By the way, just as a side note, this is the first time Israel is used to describe them as a nation. This is a scar on the nation of Israel. What these men, this man did is a scar on the nation of Israel. You want to know what, how God feels about this sin? Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Moses says that Shechem has done a disgraceful thing that ought not to be done. In fact, when, when God gives Moses the law and he says, okay, if this person does this, then this should be the punishment. He does this, this should be the punishment. Anybody who does rape deserves death. That's how he sees it. Now look at verse 8. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him in marriage. One of Satan's most effective ways to destroy God's people is to have them marry unbelievers. It's a sin for a Christian to marry a non-Christian. You don't have to pray about it. You don't have to think through it. You don't have to seek wise counsel. It's sin. Look how God would direct them in the law. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, okay, this is, this is uh, Hamor's group, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn, away, turn your sons away from following me to serving other gods." Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. But thus you shall do to them. You shall tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, hew down their ashram, and burn their graven images with fire. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. 
You see the same thing in the New Testament when he talks about not being unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Why? What's the purpose? Because you are his treasured possession. And when you're unequally yoked, it's more likely that they will corrupt you than for you that you would convert them. Look at verse 9. He says, intermarry with us. Give your daughters to us. Take your daughters, take our daughters for yourselves. Thus you shall live with us in the land and shall be open before you. Live and trade in it. Acquire property in it. So this is much bigger than just Dinah and Shechem. Hamor is proposing a marriage alliance between the Hivites and the Israelites. He wants to unify the people. Well, let's get married together. Let's intermarry. Let's, let's live together. Let's do business together. Again, it's hard not to, to look at this from a judicial and a Western point of view and say, wait a second, what about Dinah? How come nobody's talking about Dinah? This isn't justice. This is, this is using a heinous, sinful act to get rich and powerful. And then you get Hamor promising Israel the land. It's already his land. God's the one who gave it to them. By the way, we know that Hamor is being deceptive here. He has, he has no plan at all to, to, uh, to really to, to intermix with them. We see that in verse 23. Look what he says when trying to convince the people. He says, will not their livestock and their property and all their animals be ours? So this isn't a matter of, hey, let's, let's see if you know, we, can, we can just make this fair, right? 50-50. No, he's not doing that. He's saying, if we do this, we do what they tell us to do, we'll have everything. We'll take their land. We'll take their women. We'll take their children. We'll take their livestock. This is all a scam. All of it. Now that Daddy Hamor has spoken, look what Shechem says, verse 11. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, if I find favor in your sight, then I will give whatever you say to me. Ask me ever so much bridal payment and gift, and I will give according as you say to me, but give me the girl in marriage. Listen, brothers, whatever you want for your sister, There's no price too high because I love her so much that I'll give it. And I know for us, that just sounds weird, right? A a bride price. We really don't think of bride prices in in the States. In fact, our our way of doing it, it's it's kind of funny, you know, that a young man asked asked a dad for permission to marry his daughter. and, and, And when the dad gives approval, then the dad also pays for it. Like that's just a warped system as a man of seven daughters. (laughs) You know, so many places around the world actually still have a bride price. A young man asked the father, may I marry your daughter? I want to take your daughter's hand in marriage. And and, and in South Africa, for instance, if if the dad says yes, then the, the young man goes to the uncles and the uncles negotiate a bride price for, for the wife. They pay for the daughter. And then once the, do- the dowry is pray- paid, then the girl literally becomes the husband's property. Why? Because he bought her. That sounds weird, doesn't it? 
Your wife is your property, like I bought my wife. And yet, that's the imagery that the New Testament uses when our bridegroom, the Lord Jesus, purchased his bride, the church. How did he do that? Death. That was the cost. Not so strange now, is it? Number three, if you're taking notes, we see deceitful negotiations. Deceitful negotiations. We've already seen that Hamor and Shechem uh, were scamming Jacob. Like, we know that. We know that they're trying to get over on the sons. And, but these boys, you know, they grew up with Uncle Laban around. They, they grew up with deceitful dad around. And so they're pretty good deceivers as well. Look at verse 13. Jacob's sons asked, answered Shechem, and his father Hamor, what's it say? With deceit. He, he answered them with deceit. And then it gives a reason, because he defiled Dinah, their sister. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we consent to you. If you will become like us and that every male of you be circumcised, then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters for ourselves and we will live with you and become one people. Listen, L Levi and Simeon have no intention at all of agreeing to intermarry, none. The, what they're thinking is they're gonna incapacitate them and then they're gonna kill them for what they did to their little sister. And they're gonna use the very symbol that God used to, to mark them, to separate them, to to show that Israel is unique as God's people to deceive them. And so the argument is, oh, we, we'd love to give you our sister, but we can't because you're uncircumcised. And so if that's the deal, well then why don't you just, this one guy get circumcised? No, you know what? All of you need to be circumcised, all the men. And it's a deal breaker as far as they're concerned. Look at verse 17, he says, if you will not listen to us to be circumcised, we will take our daughter and go. Wait a second, when did he move from my sister to our daughter? Our daughter. Now they're speaking for daddy. Why are they speaking for daddy? Because daddy's silent, daddy's passive. He's silent when he hears of her defilement. He's silent in giving direction to his sons on how they should deal with these things. Don't you wonder, like what would, what would Jacob have done if his sons weren't around? I think it would have stayed silent. Like there's nothing in here to indicate that, that he's gonna not allow Dinah to marry Shechem. And then you just think about this from a religious point of view. Let's say Shechem gets circumcised. He's still as pagan as he has ever been. There's no talk of get circumcised and start following the God of Jacob. This is just an agreement that has an outward religious symbol to it. Look at verse 18. Now their words seemed reasonable to Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's son. The young man did not delay to do the thing because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. Now he was more respected than all of the household of his father. And so you can translate that Hebrew word for reasonable as honorable or respectable. So here's, here's Shechem saying, hey, that's, that's respectable. We'll do that. Listen, there's nothing respectable about this. 
But they, they've got to convince everybody, right? And so they go to the men of the city. Look at verse 20. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city, spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are friendly with us. Therefore, let them live in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters in marriage and give our daughters to them. Okay, this is a big decision here, right? Look at verse 22. He says, only on this condition will the men consent to live with us. So say, hey, this is respectable. What they're asking us, we should be able to do that. It's not a big deal. Oh, by the way, this is one thing that they're asking. He says, to become one people that every male among us be circumcised as they are circumcised. You guys are okay with that, right? I mean, think about it. Then their livestock and their property and all their animals will be ours. Only let us consent to them and they will live with us. And all who went out of the gate of this city listened to Hamor and to his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of this city. I mean, this is the no pain, no gain talk. And we see two reasons that Shechem gives them to be circumcised. Two reasons. By the way, a lot of people will, will put on a religious symbol in order to get married, right? I, I am well of the, I grew up Catholic. I'm well aware of, of all these classes that people would have to go through the Catholic classes just to be able to get married, right? Some of you guys probably went through Catholic rituals, religious rituals to marry your spouse, right? You went through that promising, we'll stay Catholic. We're going to raise our kids Catholic. Look at you sitting in church now. Fiancés will go to church. Fiancés will pray, you know, that prayer that you got to pray. They'll walk that aisle. They'll get baptized. Why? Because we love. That's why. And then within weeks after getting married, you never see them again. It's just an outward religious ritual that they are willing to perform in order to get what they want. And the Hivites or the Shechemites, whatever you want to call them, they are willing to go through momentary pain, this, put on this religious symbol for two reasons. Marry their women, get their property. I will do the religious duty for women and for riches. Point number four, successful revenge. I put that in quotes. Successful. 25, verse 25 now it came about on the third day when they were in pain that two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword, came upon the city unawares and killed every male. This is significant. This third day is significant. When this was a traumatic surgery, there would have been significant inflammation and swelling. You know what day it culminates on? Day three. You don't start getting better till day four. Lots of pain, lots of risk of dying from complications without antibiotics, without anesthesia. So while they were in their worst pain, they killed him. Verse 26. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the edge of the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and went forth Jacob's sons came upon the slain and looted the city because they had defiled 
their sister. They took their flocks and their herds and their donkeys and that which was in the city and that which was in the field. And they captured and looted all their wealth. And look what it says, all their little ones. They took their kids and their wives. All that was in their houses. I mean, they killed them. They, they looted the town. They took the women and the children as slaves. He says, why do we do that? Well, Shechem defiled our sister, but now it says they defiled the sister. So, so these boys put the responsibility of this one guy's sin on every man in the, in the, in the city. All of them. It says that, that term, he says, with the edge of the sword. You know how you can translate that? According to the sword's power to devour unmercifully. They killed them according to the sword's power to devour unmercifully. They killed them, they captured them, and they plundered them. Look at verse 30. And then poor Jacob. Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me odious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites, and my men being few in number, they will gather together against me and attack me, and I will be destroyed, I and my household. Jacob is, is horrified, not at, at Dinah's defilement. Jacob is horrified by what his sons did. And he feared that when word got out <clears throat> among the nations, his safety was at stake. God has already promised him to bring him into the land. God has already promised him to prosper him. And honestly, Jacob has nothing to complain about. Jacob should have taken the lead. Jacob should have protected his daughter. His silence and his son's actions have endangered the entire family, and now he's mad about it when he should have taken the lead on it. But is there anything where he condemned their actions? No, he condemns how this is going to affect him. Look at verse 31. They said, and, and I, I, like, I actually really like this response, should he treat our sister as a harlot? Dad, would that have been okay? Just let, let them treat her as a harlot? I, I doubt any of us is really angry with Simeon and Levi, right? I mean, it's hard to blame them. I mean, consider the options they had. Was there a government that they could have turned to? I mean, they're looking for justice, right? Can they go to the government? No. Is there a police force where they can write a report? No, there's not 911. There's no abuse hotline. The, the leading officials of that town, of those people, are the ones who did the crime. And so who does he expect to bring about justice? Silent dad? Dad's not going to do it. No legal system of that day. Justice was brought about by the edge of the sword. It's like what I said earlier. The, the pastor's wives in South Africa give counsel that I would never give. I would never have told Simeon and Levi to do what they did. But I understand it. Because it's not like they had a bunch of options. I am not going to let my sister be treated as a harlot. The difference for us is we have options. So how do we apply this? Well, a few ways. Number one, beware of wandering. Listen, we, we all feel terrible for Dinah, right? 
The reality is that she should have never been alone with Shechem. Proverbs 22, verse three, look what it says. The prudent sees the evil and hides himself. But the naive go on and are punished for it. Rather than hiding from the evil, she just went on. Proverbs 13, verse 20. He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Some translations say the companion of fools will be destroyed. And so rather than seeing evil and hiding, Dinah wandered forward. Rather than walking with the wise, she suffered the harm by wandering with fools. She's not the only wanderer, though, is she? Jacob wandered into Shechem. God told him to go to Bethel. He went to Shechem. And now he's scared for his, his life because of what his sons have done. So number one, beware of wandering. Number two, know your weaknesses. There's a pattern that we see in Shechem that we all need to be aware of, and, and it's a pattern of sin. So what you see in Shechem is that he saw her, he desired her, and he took her. Listen, that's how sin happens. That's the pattern of Eve in the, in the Garden of Eden, remember? Eve saw the fruit, she desired the fruit, and she took the fruit. King David, standing up there on his balcony, he saw Bathsheba, he desired Bathsheba, he took Bathsheba. We can pick on them all we want, but the same is true for us. We want, we see, we want, we take. Now the object that we desire on the way to sin may be different, but the pattern of sin is not. Our desires determine our, de our direction and our direction determines our destination. And, and just think about the desires that are here. Dinah desired friendship. Shechem desired Dinah. Hamor desired power. Jacob desired safety. Simeon and Levi, they desired revenge. I do what I do because I want what I want, right? And as long as I want anything other than pleasing God, that my weaknesses and my desires are gonna overcome me in sin is the inevitable conclusion. Listen, you don't wander into Christ-likeness. You wander away from it. Christ-likeness is intentional. And you have to know your weaknesses to keep you from sin and to become more and more like him. Point number three, you keep an eternal perspective. You know, as I read this text, there's one person who seems to be absent, but he's not. Father Jacob is absent in this text. But Father God is neither absent or passive. Not only does our God fight for us, he comes and gets us in our wandering. In a few minutes, we're gonna sing the song, Yet Not I, But Christ, But Through Christ in Me. I love the second and third stanza to it. It says, the night is dark, but I am not forsaken. For by my side, the Savior, he will stay. I labor on in weakness and rejoicing, for in my need, his power is displayed. To this I hold, my shepherd will defend me. Through the deepest valley, he will lead. Oh, the night has been won, and I shall overcome. Yet not I, but through Christ, in me. And so no fate I dread. I know I am forgiven. The future is sure. The price that has been paid for Jesus bled and suffered for my pardon. And he was raised to overthrow the grave. To this I hold. My sin has been defeated. Jesus now and ever is my plea. Well, the chains are released and I can sing I am free. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Listen, that's the kind of language that carries on a eternal perspective. And finally, point number four, change your direction. If you continue in the direction that your life is going now, 
where will you be in five years? Will you be more like Christ or less? Will your family be more committed to the things of God or less? Will you be able to teach God's word five years from now or will you still have the need to be taught the elementary principles of God's word? Are you wandering away from God or are you walking intentionally towards him? The the term repentance literally means to change one's way of life as a result of a complete change of thought and attitude with regard to sin and righteousness. It's change, it's change in your mind that leads to a changed life. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for the difficult passages of scripture, the ones that make us real out of, whether it's embarrassment or anxiousness or being terribly put off. Maybe for some it just brings up terrible memories for them. Father, I thank you that in Christ there's hope. There's hope for the sinner and hope for the one who's been sinned against. Father, I pray that as a church we might comfort one another, encourage one another, love one another, and spur one another on to righteousness. Thank you for this example of Jacob and these brothers. But more than that, thank you for the example that you as God the Father, who will never leave us or forsake us, give us. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who suffered and bled on our behalf, who didn't take revenge, but he died on our, for our sins. Father, take this time of worship. Be pleased with it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together as we...